Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask if you like this podcast and would like to see it continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Also, uh, as I've been mentioning the past few weeks, I recently wrote a book, History Stories for Everyone, uh, which is available for sale at Amazon, and I'd uh, strongly encourage you to check that out if you like the kind of stories that I've been telling. This week, we will tell the story of Steve Jobs, the man who dared to think different. The date, January 9th, 2007. The place, San Francisco, California, specifically Macworld 2007. Steve Jobs takes the stage in his self-imposed uniform of blue jeans and black mock turtleneck. No longer the long-haired hippie hunk of the computer world, Jobs is by this time a serious-looking middle-aged man, bespeckled, balding, and four years into a battle with cancer that would eventually kill him. Yet on this day, he's all energy. He paces restlessly, looking out at the crowded auditorium with an excited twinkle. Every once in a while, he says, a revolutionary product comes around that changes everything. Apple has been fortunate. It's been able to introduce a few of these into the world. He talks about the Macintosh computer, introduced in 1984, which changed the computer industry. He talks about the iPod, introduced in 2001, which changed the entire music industry. Then he talks about what he mischievously refers to as three new products that Apple will introduce in 2007. He ticks them off one by one. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The crowd cheers and claps, though it's somewhat subdued. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. This draws a bigger chair, and whoops! And the third, he says, is a breakthrough internet communications device. This brings the softest applause yet. The crowd almost seems hesitant, confused. iPod... A phone and an internet communicator, Jobs repeats. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? The crowd roars. They get it. These are not three separate devices, Jobs says. This is one device, and we are calling it iPhone. There's a very good chance you are listening to this podcast on that device. If you're not, then you are probably listening to it on another smartphone inspired and influenced by the iPhone. And those devices have changed the world, for better or worse, connecting people anywhere and everywhere in a way unprecedented in the experience of mankind. Why am I talking on a history podcast about an event that took place only 14 years ago? 
To be honest, I hesitated somewhat to tackle this topic, a topic as recent as the life of Steve Jobs. Back in my days as a history graduate student, I had a professor who informed us that anything more recent than 50 years is current events. It's not history, he explained, because we're too invested in it. To view something as history requires a certain measure of detachment and objectivity, which human nature makes impossible to achieve for things that we experienced ourselves and impacted our own lives. I respect that perspective. I even agree with it, for the most part. Yet, computers have risen so quickly that following my professor's rule would, in the case of computer history, mean ignoring pretty much all of it and its impact on mankind, except for the very early boxy mainframe days of room-sized vacuum tube devices. I decided I'm not going to ignore computer history on this podcast. So, with a big caveat that I grew up in the world that Steve Jobs shaped and continued to shape in my own lifetime, I will nevertheless endeavor, as best I can, to tell his story as history. Steve Jobs' story, like so many American stories, is tied to the story of immigration in America. His biological father, Abdul Fadah al-Jandali, grew up in Syria and migrated to America to study economics and political science. As a PhD student, he worked as a teaching assistant for several undergraduate courses, including one where he met a young undergraduate student of Swiss and German descent by the name of Joanne Scheibel. Things soon became serious. So serious that Scheibel spent the summer of 1954 with Abdel Fada in his hometown of Homs, Syria. It was during this time she became pregnant and made a couple of choices that would profoundly affect the future in ways she could never have imagined. She decided she wasn't ready to raise the child, but, having been brought up a Catholic, chose to have the baby and to put him up for adoption. On February 24, 1955, she gave birth to a baby boy in San Francisco, California. When a wealthy couple who were originally slated to adopt the boy backed out, he was placed with a blue-collar couple named Paul and Clara Jobs. Upon learning that neither had a college education, Joanne almost refused to sign the adoption papers. Paul and Clara were able to seal the deal by promising to Joanne that they would make sure the child got a college education. She finally relented, and the boy was given the name the world would come to know him by. Steve Jobs loved his adoptive parents, to the point where he would get angry whenever he heard anyone refer to them as his adoptive parents. They were his real parents. His only parents, he would say. His so-called biological parents were, in his words, just a sperm and an egg donor. He admired his father, Paul, a machinist, for his ability to build anything with his own hands. Steve spent countless hours at his father's workbench, learning a love of mechanics which served him well later in life. By the time he was ten, he was busy with engineering projects of his own. Many of Jobs' neighbors in Mountain View, California were engineers working in the budding technology industry, and the boy absorbed sponge-like the atmosphere of innovation that surrounded him. He was not a good student, 
This was not, of course, due to any lack of intelligence. It was because he could never quite understand why he should waste his time studying anything that didn't interest him personally. He found the school's arbitrary course of instruction to be boring, and acted out by becoming a prank-playing problem child. In 1967, the Jobses splurged on a new home they could barely afford in Los Altos, California, specifically to get Steve into the more academically challenging Cupertino School District, which had strong ties to Silicon Valley. It's unclear whether the better schools did much for Jobs, who remained rebellious and spent much of his teens dabbling in art, drugs, and counterculture. However, the ties to Silicon Valley certainly shaped his future in serendipitous ways. At the age of 13, he cold-called Bill Hewlett of Hewlett-Packard to ask for parts for an electronics project. The legendary technology entrepreneur was so impressed with the boy's audacity that he promptly offered him a summer job. Even more serendipitous was his first meeting with his soon-to-be-legendary Apple co-founder, Steve Wozniak. This was 1971. Jobs was just out for a walk with a friend by the name of Bill Fernandez. Jobs and Fernandez were both nerds who went to school together, loved technology, and would spend hours wandering around talking about life, the universe, latest technological developments. And on one of these walks, Fernandez spotted Steve Wozniak, who he knew separately, and introduced the two men. Two Steves immediately hit it off, sharing a love of science, technology, and practical jokes that soon had them conspiring and spending more and more of their time together. Waz, as he became known, was a few years older than Jobs and enrolled at UC Berkeley at the same time the younger Steve was still in high school. Their first business venture was a criminal enterprise. Wozniak built a blue box capable of tricking a telephone network into making free long-distance calls. Waz just thought this was neat, and really made it to use by himself, maybe lend to his friends. But Jobs had the idea to sell the things. And they sold, like proverbial hotcakes, and gave the two men their first taste of how profitable technology could be. After graduating from high school in 1972, Jobs spent just a single semester attending Reed College in Portland, Oregon, before dropping out. He didn't want to spend his parents' money on an education he considered fairly pointless. He nevertheless continued for a couple more semesters auditing the occasional random course that interested him, including one on calligraphy that would influence the famously robust font options on future Apple computers and which other computers subsequently copied. In 1974, he moved back in with his parents in Los Altos and started looking for work in the computer industry. He quickly found it working as a technician at Atari, the early video game maker, but worked there only long enough to save up some money before deciding to embark on a spiritual pilgrimage that took him to India, where he studied Hindu religion, shaved his head, and adopted traditional Indian garb. Even after returning from the United States, he continued his interest in Eastern philosophies and religions. He became an adherent of Zen Buddhism. He even considered briefly becoming a monk at a Japanese monastery. Yet for all his travels and spiritual exploration, Jobs never showed the slightest interest in his biological father's Syrian Islamic heritage. By March of 
1976. Jobs was back in America and back working at Atari when his friend Wozniak came to him with the design of the computer that would become the Apple I. Now again, Woz mostly just thought this was cool, built it as a hobby, sharing it with his friend because he thought Jobs would enjoy playing with it, and Jobs did enjoy it, but he also saw a larger potential. He suggested they make more and sell them to people who might be interested in having a computer without having to build one from scratch themselves. He convinced Woz, and uh, together they agreed to start a new company to sell the machines. Jobs suggested rather whimsically to call the company Apple after a fondly remembered apple orchard at an Oregon commune where he'd briefly stayed. They drew up the paperwork in Jobs' parents' kitchen, raised money by selling personal items, including Jobs' van, and set up manufacturing in Jobs' parents' garage. By manufacturing, I mean hand-assembled the units piece by piece. Wozniak took charge of the assembly process. Jobs focused on sales, spending hours and hours on his parents' phone in the kitchen, calling electronic stores and convincing enough of them to buy the units that Apple could not make them fast enough. He also reached out to venture capitalists to find investors so they could expand their business and build real manufacturing facilities. At first, the smart money set was skeptical. Jobs was very young, in his early 20s, and looked and acted like a hippie. Yet, there was something about him. He had a magnetic personality that people came to describe as his reality distortion field. People swore that when you were talking to him, you could become convinced anything was possible. Jobs found the investors, and together with Wozniak and a growing number of employees, moved on to building a new product, the Apple II, which was introduced at the 1977 West Coast Computer Fair as the first computer designed truly for consumers, not businesses, not computer hobbyists, but ordinary people who simply wanted the functionality of a computer and the comfort of their own homes. While Wozniak engineered the hardware, Jobs focused on the aesthetics, making sure the molded outer case looked like something people would want to have prominently displayed in their homes. It's worth noting here that the transition from business to home computers, while obvious in hindsight, was revolutionary at this time. From the first World War II era encryption machines up through the 70s, computers had been big, space-consuming machines that at first only the government and then big businesses could afford. Jobs saw that the technology was finally there to where a computer could be scaled and affordable to middle-class consumers. He saw that there were a lot more consumers out there who could afford modest home computers than there were large organizations who could afford supercomputers. That's why, from the beginning, Apple was oriented towards building consumer products. The years that followed saw Apple's sales explode. Uh, the story of dizzying growth of a tech startup has become so common as to become almost a cliché. But at the time, Jobs was the first young entrepreneur to break the age glass ceiling. His success paved the way for investors to fund thousands of other startups in the hopes of jumping on the bandwagon of the next Apple. His personal wealth went from basically nothing in 1977 to a million dollars in 1978 
into $250 million by 1980, when he was still only 25 years old. Now, most 25-year-old men handed a quarter of a billion dollars would probably happily hand over the reins to professional managers and go live on a beach somewhere. But that wasn't Steve Jobs' style. If anything, the more successful he was, the more workaholic he became, focusing all his time and energy on the company that had become his life. In 1984, he introduced the Macintosh computer, which, while not the very first graphical user interface, was one of the first that really advanced the technology and marketed it to the public. Now, by graphical user interface, I mean the kind we're familiar with today, with visual icons projected onto a screen that can be manipulated by clicking on it with a mouse or other pointing device. This is as opposed to a command line interface where somebody has to type in computer code in order to get the machine to do anything. Jobs bet big on the user-friendliness of the graphical user interface and built the entire Macintosh computer around it. The Mac famously launched with perhaps the most famous Super Bowl commercial of all time, titled 1984, and aired in January of 1984 during the big game. It starts with a scene that looks like it could have come out of George Orwell's novel of the same name. A Stalinesque black-and-white face spouts conformist propaganda from a giant screen, while hundreds of dull-eyed human drones march lockstep in prison-like uniforms. Then, suddenly, a splash of color flashes on the screen. A young woman wearing red shorts and a white shirt with an image evocative of the Macintosh computer. She carries a sledgehammer and appears to be running from four masked policemen giant face ominously declares, Today we celebrate the first glorious anniversary of the information purification directives. We have created for the first time in all history a garden of pure ideology, where each worker may bloom secure from the pests purveying contradictory truths. Our unification of thoughts is more powerful than any fleet or army on earth. We are one people, with one will, one resolve, one cause. Our enemies shall talk themselves to death, and we will bury them with their own confusion. We shall prevail. At that moment, the young woman bursts between the crowd of drones and hurls her hammer at the giant screen, which shatters. The screen goes to black and displays text read by another voice. On January 24th, Apple computers will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Joms had laid down his gauntlet, declaring his company the champion of free thinking, free speech, and liberty against the conformist legacy computer industry, and selling the idea that computers should be a tool for free thinking. This moment perhaps represented the peak of optimism for Apple and for the young computer industry. But not all was well inside the company. After Apple went public in 1980, its shareholders increasingly demanded more professional management to rein in the freewheeling company founders. Jobs initially agreed to this and even personally recruited a new company CEO, John Scully, from Pepsi, by asking him, do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? 
But it wasn't long until the headstrong job started to clash with the professional businessmen. The Macintosh was originally a success, but sales tapered off very quickly, in large part because it was expensive. Scully wanted to focus more on sales of the less expensive Apple II line of computers, which were better suited to the home and education market. Steve Jobs wanted to focus on the Macintosh, which he felt could compete head-to-head with IBM as a business desktop, as well as competing in the home market. Now, this disagreement eventually led to a showdown in which the company's board of directors sided with Scully. Jobs was offered a position in the company's product development division, which he understood to be a means of getting him out of the way. He resigned instead, leaving the company in September of 1985. Incidentally, Wozniak had left earlier that same year. The founders were gone, and Apple was now firmly under the control of professional managers. Jobs founded a new computer company called Next Computer, which produced a line of computers that were well-reviewed and technically strong, but never achieved strong sales, in large part because they were very expensive. In 1986, Jobs branched out into an entirely different industry by spending $10 million to acquire Star Wars filmmaker George Lucas's graphics division, which he renamed Pixar. The new company partnered with Disney to produce some of the most successful animated films of the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Disney eventually acquired the company in 2006 for $7.4 billion in stock, resulting in Steve Jobs being Disney's largest shareholder for a time. Back in the 1980s and 90s, Apple limped along for a decade following Jobs' departure. Uh, CEO Scully made the mistake of licensing Apple's industry-leading graphical user interface to Microsoft, which used it to produce its Windows software, essentially a clone of Macintosh's interface, uh, which eventually got good enough to eliminate Apple's competitive advantage. An entire industry of IBM clones running Windows software arose to crowd out the market from Apple, Apple's market share went from 30% to 3%, and for a time it looked like it was about to go out of business altogether. Desperate, Apple acquired Next in 1997, bringing Jobs back to Apple after 12 years in the wilderness. Apple needed Next because Next had developed a new technology, a new operating system that Apple had neglected to do, while it was focused on selling its legacy products. Jobs quickly became CEO as the Apple board recognized that the prodigal son returned was their only hope. It was during this period that Jobs, always a demanding boss, developed his legendary reputation for ruthlessness. He knew the company was hanging by a thread and had no tolerance for anyone he didn't see as bringing value. It got to the point where Apple employees dreaded getting caught in an elevator with him since more than once the employee in question found themselves without a job by the time the doors dinged back open. They developed literal elevator speeches to explain what they were working on and why it was important. He axed entire programs, pushed people to work crushing hours, albeit no less than he was willing to work himself, and did not tolerate failure. 
He was overbearing. If he had an idea about product development, uh, that was how it was going to be. And he was not interested in hearing from his engineers that his ideas wouldn't work. Make it work was his invariable response. For example, when in 2000, Apple was developing an application to burn DVDs on a Mac, the division working on it spent countless hours putting together a polished presentation. When the time came to present their ideas to Steve Jobs, he walked into the room ignoring all of the presentation materials his employees had painstakingly prepared, including their ideas on the user interface, and he walked up to a whiteboard. He drew a single rectangle and said, here is your new application. It's got one window. You drag your video into the window. Then you click the button that says burn. That's it. That's what we're going to make. Then he walked out and left them to deal with the trifling details of actually making the software do that. On another occasion, when the first iPod was being developed, the design team presented him with a prototype. It's too big, was Steve's immediate response. The engineers patiently explained that they had already gone to heroic lengths to make it as small as it was and that it was quite simply physically impossible to make it any smaller with then-existing technology. Jobs was silent for a moment until he spotted an aquarium across the room. He carried the prototype over to the aquarium, held it over the water, and dropped it. Observing air bubbles come out, he said, Those are air bubbles. That means there's space in there. Make it smaller. They made it smaller. While this kind of behavior gave Jobs a well-deserved reputation as a difficult boss, he could also show flashes of astounding generosity when an employee had a problem that was genuinely not of their own making. On one occasion, his secretary, a hardworking single mom he was otherwise happy with, was late to work. He asked her why, and she explained that her car had broken down. Later that same day, he dropped a set of car keys on her desk. It was for a brand new Jaguar. Don't be late anymore, he told her. Jobs' relentless insistence on excellence got results. Incorporating the best technology from Next, Apple built a better computer, the iMac, uh, packaged in an aesthetically pleasing colored plastic case, of course, at Jobs' insistence, and it proved to be incredibly popular. Yet he wasn't content with making a better computer. His success at Pixar had taught him he could find success in entirely new areas. That's how he wound up betting so much on the development of Apple's industry-changing music player, the iPod, released in 2001, with its simple user interface and polished design, which quickly became the company's best-selling product. This was followed by the creation of the iTunes Store, which leveraged Apple's huge user base to make Apple a major player in online commerce, selling music and other products directly to Apple customers without a middleman. Then, of course, we get back to where we started, the 2007 introduction of the iPhone. The iPhone wasn't technically the first smartphone. BlackBerry and other early entrants had produced clunky devices with plastic keyboards and limited functionality. But the iPhone blew them all out of the water. It ran off of the same basic operating system as Mac computers, which meant it was less of a phone and more of a portable, internet-connected computer that just happened to be able to make phone calls. If you're alive today, I don't need to go into detail about how the iPhones and its clones have changed the world. 
whether you think the change is for the better or not, one thing not reasonably in doubt is that Steve Jobs changed all of our lives when he walked out on that stage in San Francisco. Unfortunately, it was not long after that that Jobs exited life stage altogether. He had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2003 and had been reluctant to treat it using Western medicine. He delayed surgery and did not undergo chemotherapy or radiation, opting instead to try to control it with a vegan diet, acupuncture, and other alternative medicine approaches. After a series of ups and downs, with Jobs continuing to work right up to the bitter end, he played a major role in the 2010 release of the iPad. He died on October 5th, 2011. Only six weeks earlier, on August 9th, 2011, Apple became the most valuable company in the world. In a 2005 commencement speech to the graduates of Stanford University, Jobs observed, When I was 17, I read a quote that went something like, If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me. He told the graduates that he would look in the mirror each day and ask himself if he would want to spend the last day of his life doing what he was about to do. He said, Whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. He advised the graduates to follow their hearts. Don't be trapped by dogma, he said, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Remembering that I'll be dead soon, he said, is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Steve Jobs followed his heart and lived his entire life by the words he signed off to the Stanford graduates. Stay hungry. Stay foolish.